Well, in a few weeks' time, we'll be marking Bonfire Night on the 5th of November. Uh, LCPC, London Presbyterian Church, has members and visitors from all around the world. And so for uh, some here, that might seem one of the stranger customs that they encounter here in the UK. The historical significance of Bonfire Night might be lost to many, but fireworks and bonfires remain as popular as ever they were, even back to the 17th century. Well, if you attend a bonfire event in a few weeks' time, you will witness a real-life illustration of a biblical truth. For in Job chapter 5, verse 7, we read this. Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. There's a truth in those words, isn't it? Once the bonfire is lit, once it's raging, the heat draws the flames and the sparks in just one direction. You look at a bonfire and you know that the sparks will fly upwards. So, says Job's comforter, Eliphaz, from the day of our birth, you just know that we will encounter frustration and trouble in many things that we do. Well, Eliphaz, the Job's comforter, may well have been a bit unduly pessimistic in his advice to Job, but there is an element of truth in what he says. We live in a fallen world, and the Apostle Paul observes that the whole of creation groans, as it were, with the effects of sin. Sorrow and trouble are all too often regular occurrences in our lives, and even today, Many of us have particular burdens that we have to bear. Some are more obvious than others. Some troubles have been shared with the congregation. We pray about some of them in the midweek prayer meeting. While others are born silently and in private. But all of us, at some point or other, in some way or other, will face troubles or difficulties in this life. What then should the Christian response to such experiences be? Well, we'll try and spend a few minutes this evening considering that question as Paul provides his own reflections on the subject of trouble or suffering or affliction here in the first chapter of 2 Corinthians. Before we do so, it might be worth considering the background to the situation that faced Paul. If you were here for Harrison's series on 1 Corinthians a while ago, you may remember that Corinth was a cosmopolitan city. Not unlike London, not unlike us in many respects. It was a melting pot of different cultures, different religions, A mixture of societies, rich and poor, servants as well as masters, were in the church. 
And the church had its difficulties. And along with that, Paul also faced opposition from false leaders who claimed to be the true authorities to follow. In Greek culture, uh, a skilled orator or a successful leader was the ideal that you were expected to follow. Such a person was a leading society figure, worthy of respect. In contrast, they demeaned Paul, the accusing weak, unassuming and unreliable. Not only that, but in the first passage that we read together this evening, we see that Paul's whole ministry was full of trials. It was quite a catalogue, wasn't it, that he listed there. He was facing perils of travel. Three times he'd been shipwrecked. He'd been beaten on five separate occasions. He'd undergone privations. He'd faced opposition. And all the time, he tells us, he was weighed down with his concern for the church day by day and his fellow Christians. Paul then was no stranger to trouble or affliction. He was a man who was used to facing opposition. He was familiar with enduring physical hardship. He suffered illness and he was constantly bearing the burden of ministry. Well, as we consider Paul's reflections on suffering here at the beginning of chapter 1, I'd like to pick up on four points as we work our way through this passage. And the first point is that suffering leads us to experience God's comfort. Look at verse 3. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions. In many ways, this is quite a remarkable start for Paul as he begins to reflect on the subject of suffering. For he starts off with a doxology, praising God. Last Monday, when I went into work, first thing in the week, I spoke to a colleague who had just come back from holiday in Spain. I asked her how it had gone and expected to hear uh, an excited report of her week away. But rather than tales of sunshine and excursions, the lady uh, explained how a friend had gone down with COVID and uh, was now in intensive care at our local hospital. That was weighing heavily on her. And quite naturally, that was the subject which eclipsed everything else, including memories of a holiday. And this is normal, isn't it? Typically, if things are not going well, or if there's a problem, this is the thing that's foremost in our minds. It's one of the first things that people want to speak about. You ask, how are you? And immediately, the problem is shared. Not so Paul, however. Notwithstanding the opposition that he was facing and the difficulties he had to deal with, 
Paul, you see, doesn't dwell on these. Paul immediately focuses our attention on God. And not only that, he launches out into an into an outburst of praise for his Lord. He tells us that God is a God of comfort, as the Father of all mercies. This is a bit of a Hebrew idiom. The point is not that mercies come from the Father, as if he is the source of mercy. Neither does it mean that God is a dispenser of comforts, like some sort of comfort vending machine. Rather, Paul is here proclaiming that the very essence of God's character is that he is merciful. That his very nature is to bring comfort to those who trust in him. And as he does so, you notice that... uh, Paul turns our attention to the second person of the Trinity. Paul pours out praise to the Father. And he praises the one whose only begotten Son is our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why should Paul, faced with the difficulties that he did, why should he do this? Is it not that the Lord Jesus is the only source of comfort that we have? Some of you know the Heidelberg Catechism. Do you recall the first question and answer that we find there? What is your only comfort in life and death? And the first part of the answer What is your only comfort in life and death? The first part of the answer is that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from the power of the devil. And so preserves me that without the will of my Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. So you see, as Paul reflects upon the suffering and the troubles that he faces, he immediately turns the spotlight on the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He reminds us that it is our Heavenly Father who orders all our outward circumstances, including the trouble that we are facing. He reminds us that this Father has a character whose very essence is to be merciful and compassionate. And he reminds us of the Lord Jesus who paid such an immeasurable price through his death on the cross to deliver us from the effects of sin. You know, when you fly out from uh, an airport, you can buy all sorts of things from the shops that are airside. Duty-free, books to read, 
last-minute presents and souvenirs from the country that you're leaving. In Ben-Gurion Airport in Israel, you can also buy diamonds. And the people selling those diamonds lay out a black cloth. So when the diamonds are placed on the black background, they sparkle and glisten all the more brightly. Friends, isn't this what Paul is doing here? As he reflects upon the trouble that he is experiencing, he doesn't focus on those difficulties. Rather, he focuses on the one who is of inestimable worth. And in setting his saviour against the dark background of those difficulties, the Lord Jesus and our salvation in him is displayed in all his beauty and is seen to be all the more precious. Faced with troubles, you see, Paul does not find comfort coming from his God, but Paul finds comfort in his God. Matthew Henry puts it, puts it succinctly like this. In the world, they had trouble. But in Christ, they had peace. But if that's the first point to notice, that suffering leads us to experience God's comfort, the second we find in verse 5, which is that suffering links us to Christ. Look what it says. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. At first sight, this is a very bold statement, isn't it? It speaks of us sharing in Christ's sufferings. How can this be? Paul had suffered all those troubles that we read about earlier in chapter 11. He'd been shipwrecked, he'd been beaten, he'd faced opposition. But even that was nothing compared to Christ. Paul hadn't been crucified, had he? Paul hadn't been offered up like Christ. Paul hadn't felt the full fury of God's wrath poured out on him as Christ had experienced at Calvary. That's true. But the Bible has a whole raft of references and expressions that speak of us being united with Christ if we're Christians. In Galatians 2.20, we're told that we are crucified with him. In Romans 6.5, we're told that we are united with him in his resurrection. In Ephesians 2.6, we're told that... um, Uh, we read that God has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. And in Ephesians 3.17, we're told that Christ dwells in our hearts. And all of these verses point to the truth that in some mysterious but very real way, Christians are united to the Lord Jesus. John Calvin stated that our union with Christ 
was of utmost importance. I quote, for this is the design of the gospel, the purpose of the gospel, that Christ may become ours and that we may be engrafted into his body. So when this verse speaks Christ's sufferings, this is neither the sufferings that Christ experienced in his own body, such as his sacrificial death on the cross, and neither are they simple sufferings that we experience in isolation from Christ. Rather, there's a sense in which sufferings which we experience are, as Christians are linked to Christ. In Acts 9, you may recall, we read the story of the conversion of Paul. Before Paul was converted, he was known as Saul. He'd been persecuting the church, causing havoc, breaking up meetings, carrying believers off to prison. And then in the account of his conversion on the road to Damascus, we read that Saul hears a voice. And the voice says to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? These are the words of Jesus. In these words, the Lord Jesus tells us that when Saul was persecuting the Christians, he was also persecuting Christ. So you see, the church of the Lord Jesus is intimate bound to her saviour. The bride is one with the bridegroom. In Philippians 3.10, Paul speaks of sharing in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Charles Hodge says that when this verse speaks of Christ's sufferings, these are such sufferings as Christ suffered and which his people are called upon to endure in virtue of their union with him and in order to be like him. So what sufferings did Christ endure? Turn to the Gospels. And what do we see there? We're told that Jesus experienced grief with the death of a friend. We're told that he was treated with contempt. He was maligned. He was mocked. He was spurned by family and forsaken by friends. He was falsely accused. He was spat upon, beaten, and finally put to death. Yet Paul tells us that if we experience suffering or trouble, then our very union with Christ is also a comfort and a consolation. How can this be? Well, firstly... Paul is reminding us that we do not endure our trials or troubles alone. Paul tells us that if you are a Christian, you do so together with the Lord Jesus. But second, Paul highlights that just as the persecution of our fellow Christians is the same as persecuting Christ... so acts of comfort and consolation can be supplied by Christ 
through our fellow Christians. Remember, if you, I don't know if you know, remember the words in Matthew 25 when the Lord Jesus is speaking about final judgment. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king, the Lord Jesus, will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and then you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink and when do we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you and when did we see you sick and or in prison and visit you and the king will answer them truly i say to you as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers so you did to me This is a profound truth, isn't it? That Christ receives from you, as to himself, the very acts that you apply to your fellow believers. Friends, isn't this an encouragement to be a comfort to others in the church who are enduring trouble? Isn't it an encouragement to be a sympathetic ear, a helping hand, to show compassion, to demonstrate the love of Christ practically. For by doing so, you are providing the comfort of Christ to another in their trouble. Well, that takes us on to the third point to note from this passage, which is that suffering gives us fellowship with others. And we we see that in verses 6 and 7. If we're afflicted, says Paul, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. We sometimes speak of someone suffering in silence, don't we? But that doesn't seem to be what Paul anticipates happening in the church. Whether the church in Corinth hears of his suffering, or whether the church in Corinth Here's how he found his hope and encouragement in Christ. Paul anticipates 
that they should be encouraged by that. The theologian Charles Hodge again says this, the design of God in afflicting and then consoling Paul was to qualify him for the office as a consoler of the afflicted. You follow what he says? The design of God, the plan of God in firstly afflicting and then comforting Paul was to qualify him to be a consoler of the afflicted. And indeed, back in verse 4, if you look back in the passage a little earlier, having reflected on the comfort that we experience in the face of affliction, the comfort that we derive from God himself, Paul says there that one reason we suffer is so that we can share that comfort that we have found with others. And we shouldn't make light of the difficulties that others face. Illness, grief, privation, isolation, loneliness and opposition are all hard providences to endure. But doesn't Paul give us this encouragement when we're faced with trouble or difficulties. Paul tells us that God may use your experience so that you are then equipped to share with others both the trouble that you've experienced and the comfort that you find in Christ. When someone else is grieving, when someone else is overwhelmed, when someone else is feeling embattled, you will know how they feel. You'll be able to say, I've been there. You'll be able to say that you too have endured trouble. But you will also be able to share how the Lord Jesus Christ has helped you endure the same. Indeed, can I take that a little bit further? I have a friend whose child is suffering from a debilitating chronic disease. One day her husband was speaking to someone about the problem. And the man he was speaking to revealed that he too had suffered from the same disease and was able to explain how God had helped him through that experience. You see, that man's suffering as a child all those years beforehand had become a specific comfort to this Christian family today. You see, in God's providence, you may experience something that no one else in this church has experienced. And if it were not for the affliction that you endure, it's possible that no one would be equipped to encourage someone else who's going through a similar experience. Maybe you're the only one who can give them such comfort because you're the only person to have gone through the same difficulty. Having spoken of God's design in equipping Paul to be a consoler of the afflicted, 
Charles Hodge goes on. In this design or this plan, Paul acquiesced. For he was willing to be thus afflicted in order to become the consoler of others. The fourth lesson I think we have to learn from this passage we see in verses 8 to 11, and it's that suffering may encourage both us and others in our faith. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. We don't know precisely what affliction Paul had experienced in Asia. Some have suggested that it was opposition to his gospel ministry. Others have suggested that it was illness or disease, illness that did almost taken to the brink of death. It's quite possible that Paul didn't have to spell it out because the church in Corinth already knew what it was. Maybe the false leaders who were demeaning Paul had drawn attention to his affliction to contrast with their supposed strength, contrasting their strength with his weakness. Whatever the affliction was, it wasn't to be brushed off lightly. For Paul tells us that he was so burdened by it that he despaired of life itself. But he was also able to reflect on that affliction and see that in the Lord's providence, he had been brought to that place for a purpose so that he should come to rely not upon himself, but upon the Lord. Friends, we can't dismiss troubles or sufferings as mere irritations. In God's providence, they may be serious. They may require help using worldly skills. We've been praying in our prayer meeting recently for a number of people suffering from cancer. We pray that God would guide those giving medical care. We pray that those treatments would be effective. And Paul does not suggest anything to the contrary here, but he acknowledges that such events arise in God's providence. Paul recognized that Difficult as it was, God had used this experience, whatever it was, to his spiritual good. And you see, did you notice what effect it had on Paul? He looked back and then he was able to say that God 
delivered us from such a deadly peril. But that wasn't all. He was also able to say, and he will deliver us. And on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You see, the experience of God's comfort in these circumstances, dire as they were, became not only the basis of his peace now, but also a sure confidence that he could look to in the future. He has, he does, and he will again. But not only that, by sharing his experience with his fellow believers, his desire was that they would also share in that same confidence. Paul sought their partnership through prayer, didn't he? His earnest hope was that by joining with their prayers, they too would be encouraged as they see comfort and deliverance provided by Christ in the face of trouble and affliction. There's an obvious practical application to Paul's last point, isn't there? Surely it is to come to the prayer meeting. Support one another in prayer. But also be encouraged as you see our God and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ answer those prayers. Be encouraged as you see comfort and deliverance provided by Christ. What do we say in conclusion? Firstly, there is an encouragement here in this passage for Christians to view their troubles like Paul in the sure knowledge that they have a heavenly father who seeks the best for his people. Friends, God will not always remove trouble from us. But in his wise counsel, he will comfort us in them. Not only that, he will use troubles to our good and the glory of his name. But secondly, there's a challenge to those who are not Christians. Being a Christian doesn't remove troubles. As we said from the big, at the beginning, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upwards. Being a Christian brings comfort in the midst of trouble. Because in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, a Christian can say, I belong unto my faithful saviour, Jesus Christ. But if you're alienated from the source of that comfort, you won't receive it. If you do not belong to Jesus Christ, then he cannot comfort you. The challenge then must be to come to Christ and for us all to find our comfort there. Let's pray together. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we do bow before you this evening and acknowledge that you are our Sovereign Lord. We acknowledge, Lord, that uh, the world in which we live groans with the effects of sin. And that brings all manner of difficulties and troubles upon us. 
and in our experiences. And for some, Lord, we, of our brothers and sisters, we acknowledge that these, these troubles and these difficulties are deep and heavy and difficult providences to bear. But we thank you, Lord, for the words of Paul who reminds us that set against that backdrop, the wonder of the gospel and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ is indeed a most precious thing. We bow before you, Lord, this evening and acknowledge that in your wise providence you do take our brothers and sisters through difficult seasons. But, Lord, we trust that ultimately these things are done for the good of your church, the good of of those who are found in Christ. Lord, we trust that you will indeed work all things out in accordance with your perfect wisdom. And that though we may not be able to discern the reason, the purpose behind a particular difficulty as we experience it, Lord, we look with the eye of faith and trust that you are there with us and that one day we will be able to reflect and see that you have done all things well. Father, we pray this evening for those who are going through particular times of trouble, those who face the burdens of grief, the burdens of illness, those who are feeling lonely, and isolated, those who are feeling embattled, those who are struggling in all manner of ways. Father, we pray that you would draw close to them, that they might know your presence, your comfort, your consolation. And we pray, Lord, that we as a church might respond as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, seeking to show the love of Christ to our brothers and sisters, and indeed counting it a privilege to do so. So, Father, we pray that you would be with us as we go into this coming week. May we know your presence with us. And particularly, Lord, we ask this for those who have particular burdens to bear. We ask all these things in and through the name of our precious Saviour, the Lord Jesus.